This evening we are continuing our series in the book of Mark. Uh, we are on the road with Jesus. Uh, he has, he's in the province of Galilee. And this morning we saw Jesus enter the land of the garrisons. That's what verse 1 of chapter 5 says. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the garrisons. Uh, this is, as I said this morning, for those of you who are here, this is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The area we are in is the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. And Jesus is somewhere, we think, near the village of Gadara. But there's also Gadara, which is a good contender. The important thing you need to be aware of is that we are predominantly in a pagan or Gentile country. We know this, of course, not only historically, but we can also see in the text there are pigs running around, as it were. Uh, and so, you know, Jews don't keep, keep pigs. So we are pretty confident that this is Gentile country. That's important for us to know, isn't it? That Jesus uh, is not among his own people, the Jews, as it were. He's actually among people who the Jews regard as a thorn in their side. People who do not deserve mercy from Jews or from Jesus or from God in general. But God is here in the garrisons and is walking around with dishes of heavenly mercy. And this morning we saw Jesus come face to face with the demoniac. Let's read verse 1 to verse 5 to remind ourselves of this. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the garrisons. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He is demon, demonized. He lived among the tombs, a graveyard, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That is really essentially where we left it. Uh, we left the narrative. Uh, if you like, as a cliffhanger, as it were. Because in verse 6, we see that when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him. So we have that encounter now between the demoniac and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we left it off. And the lesson we left this morning uh, is that all human beings are hopelessly enslaved by satanic powers. It's a sobering truth. It's a serious truth. All human beings by nature are hopelessly enslaved by satanic powers. But we began to see that Jesus has come to liberate us from this satanic power. And that's what we looked at this morning. We, we saw something of that this morning, but this evening we're going to see much fuller that truth because we're going to look at verse 6 to verse 13. And the key truth I want us to see here is that Jesus has come to liberate us from Satan's power, as I've said. Jesus has come to liberate us from Satan's power. It's the middle truth. Remember in the morning I told you that this passage has three truths we are looking at. The first truth which we looked at this morning is that man, we looked at the, the, the slavery of man, right? Man is enslaved. This evening we are looking at the liberation of man. And next Sunday morning 
we will look at the restoration of man. So, please look with me at verse 5 there. Uh, let's just read that again. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down. We see that the demoniac man has seen Jesus from far. We don't know how far. And he's running towards Jesus to, to confront him. And immediately when he sees Jesus, he falls down. And as I mentioned this morning, the original word there for falling down uh, really converts bowing down in reverence to a superior. They are, bowing, they are being compelled to fall down. It's quite an amazing thing. Perhaps they are coming sort of, you can imagine somebody carrying a knife and trying to stab someone. All of a sudden, something forces them to bow down and acknowledge him. They are looking at their creator God, Jesus. And the glory of Jesus, his wonder, his power, like an invisible force, compels them to their need to acknowledge him. But oh, we've seen this before in chapter 1. We saw it in chapter 3. What we need to remember is that whenever the demons do this, they are not doing it because they love Jesus. <laughs> uh, they are just being compelled to do it. It's a picture, actually, of the future. When every knee shall bow to Jesus, whether you like it or not. And they are bowing down here even as they hate Jesus. We know that because look at what they say in verse eight, 7 to 8. And crying aloud, crying out with a loud voice, verse 7, he said, that's a demonized, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Jesus, was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Let us just pause there. Let's just picture this scene there. Jesus is there with this man, and this man has spoken these words to Jesus. The first thing I want, I want you to notice two things. The first thing I want you to notice here is that here what we see is that the, the demons want Jesus to leave them alone. And they think that by mentioning Jesus' name and appealing to God, they will get what they want. I hope you picked that up. What are you to do with me, Jesus? They mentioned, they said, we know you, you're Jesus. We're acknowledging that. Son of the Most High God. And then they appeal to God. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. They're using the name of Jesus. And they're appealing to God for Jesus to leave them alone. The demons are using religious language as a way of manipulating God himself, Jesus, into making life go well for them. We need to think about that. Because this is telling us this is how Satan behaves. And this is how he behaves in society in general. Uh, it's very interesting in society when you have people, you know, who love liturgies. They may not have a relationship with God, but they love attending sort of religious services where they can just read off the words. And somehow they feel if they read off those words, life will go well for them. They, don't, they hate God, really, but they feel that God can give them what they want if they use the right words. Sadly, this is also even in, in, in churches that would profess, would, wouldn't use liturgy, but would profess, um, would profess some faith in Jesus, in some Christians. 
So some, some people who, who claim to be Christian, uh, they feel that if they use certain words, then God will hear their prayers. So often you find that some people think, if I say the name of Jesus so many times, I adjure you, Jesus, please do this for me. Or if I fast, I fast, I fast. Then it doesn't matter what my relationship to Jesus is, as long as I am using the right words, right? Then Jesus will give me what I want. It's no different from what the demons are doing here, using words. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't say, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't pray in the name of Jesus. Of course we should. But we should never see using such things as formulas. There are some people who tell me, oh, well, that was a beautiful prayer that they had someone pray. Why are they saying that? Because they think they're having a long prayer with very King James language in it. Or, or perhaps the 1689 confession filling the, the prayer. That somehow those words will make that prayer acceptable to God. You see, many of us do just what the demons are doing. We feel we can manipulate God with words. We see it in the name and climate gospel or the word faith movement. And some people think if they confess something enough, right? Maybe they're praying for God to give them a job. If they start confessing, I have a job now. In Jesus' name, I have a job now. They feel it doesn't matter about their life. God will give them that because they have confessed it just like these demons. People think if they confess something, they can manipulate God into doing what they want. But we see here that this is how demons think. It is not how children of God, who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, should behave or think. The first thing that God impresses upon our hearts is that we are sinners and we cannot demand anything from God. We cannot manipulate Him with words. We cannot confess things into existence. And suddenly our long prayers do not impress him at all. My people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God warns us. So we must be careful here. We must realize that God is God and not live as the demons do. So the first thing we, that's the first thing we see there, that they're trying to manipulate Jesus with words. The second thing we see here is that the demons fear being sent to hell. I hope that's very clear to us here in verse 7. Notice what they say. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Matthew and Luke have, this, have the account in, 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 in the same account. In, uh, Matthew actually uh, records the second demoniac as well. But both Luke and Mark focus mainly on one demoniac. And, and in Luke, the, 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 record, the, the question they record, Luke records is this in Luke 8, verse 31. This is how Luke records this question. He says, And they begged him, that is, the demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. They begged Jesus. What they're asking is that Jesus shouldn't send them into the abyss. Matthew emphasizes that what the demons really are asking Jesus is not just simply to send them into the abyss, not, not for Jesus to send them into the abyss, but, no, no, but also before their time. So if you read the account in Matthew, it picks up that point. They're, they're asking Jesus, this is the point I'm getting at, they're asking, they're, they're asking, pleading with Jesus not only to send them for torment, it's to a specific place, the abyss. And they also don't want Jesus to send them before their time. They know they are headed there. But 
they do not want to go there in the first place. What is the abyss? What is this place of torment? Well, the abyss is that place of spiritual confinement before final and eternal judgment. It is hell as Jesus describes it. The, it is sobering to think here that the demons spend their time on earth fearing the horrors of hell. Satan is afraid of hell. He's afraid of its condition. He's afraid of what's there. What is in hell that Satan is so afraid of? Well, because God in hell is in complete charge of hell. God is in complete charge of hell, not for the good of people who are there, but against them for their utter destruction. When we think of hell, let us remember that God's aim in hell is not to sustain people, but to crush them. Let us remember that God's purpose in hell is to ensure that those who have rejected him feel the full force of his divine omnipotence forever. Let me put it this way. We have seen already what Satan's vision of hell looks like. In Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, we have a description of how hell with Satan is. We see it in the demoniac. That's hell on earth. And that's with God's common grace. It's a life of confusion, torment, perpetual self-harm. That's what the Satan had done to this man. Now, Satan fears what God would do. That tells me that no evil, nothing we see on it compares to the wrath that is to come for people in hell. Or what people in hell are under at this moment. I make this point just to encourage us to reflect on this carefully. We can hear many sermons on hell, but the truth of the matter is, there are simply no words to describe the horrors of hell. What does it feel like to have all of God against you, against your soul? Not for your good, but to inflict the worst pain imaginable. No wonder these demons live each day dreading when they will be sent there. <coughs> Satan doesn't want to face the wrath of God, and we must be reminded as brothers and sisters in Christ that neither should you want that. It challenges me to think that the demons have air front and center of their thinking every day. I'm not saying we should copy them, but I think... There is something about that. That hell is not a subject we can simply just blank out of our mind if we've really been saved from it. It must be a subject that we reflect on, that brings us to tears before God, that makes us weep. And, and I think if there's an application here as we think of this subject. I think we can pray to God if we're truly converted to help us to weep at the thought of hell. Because the reason we are not able to weep is we, are, we don't feel its horror as even the demons do. And so let us ask God to help us think and pray. Let us pray.
press the play button again on this text. The demons, as you see here, want Jesus to leave. How will Jesus respond? Well, (laughs) to our surprise, Jesus engages the man with a question. Uh, We have not seen this before. This is completely new. Look at verse 9. So in verse 8, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And verse 9 says, And Jesus asked him, Verse 8, by the way, just summarizing the entire event. And verse 9 is saying, Jesus now poses a question, and Jesus asked him, What is your name? Now I want you to note the confusion uh, in the pronouns that the demon gives here. He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. The demon is one and many. And again, we come back to the theme in the morning that Satan has destroyed his, this man's identity completely. Uh, he's in church now, and the demon has his own thing going on. He's one and many demons, so to speak. The name Legion is a Roman, as you may know, military term describing a fighting force of somewhere between 2,000 and 6,000 men. Now, we may wonder, are there really 2,000 or 6,000 demons? It does say there are many. Um, I'll let you decide whether you need to believe him or not. <laughs> He's a demon, remember. But he is saying there are many. And the name Legion, and Jesus doesn't clarify that, so we can take that as given, because Jesus knows. But we are asking, why, why is he calling himself Legion? Why is he making this point? Is the demon threatening Jesus somehow, like, we're going to fight it out now? We are many of us, and we are ready for a fight? Well, I doubt it because the next verse, verse 10, tells us how the demon is actually, these demons are feeling. Verse 10 says, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So actually the text confirms there are many of them. Even as the text itself in verse 10, Mark points out this singularity. Mark notes the confusion in the demon, one and many. But the point I want to highlight here is that the demons do not want to leave the area here. And there may be other reasons we explored this in the Bible study when we looked at this text. Uh, Probably the reason they don't want to leave the area uh, is because I think a very likely reason is that Satan has actually probably assigned them to this territory. We know nearby, one of the towns nearby is Epos, is a town there actually at this time dedicated just to demons, deep idolatry. So the demons probably feel they're a garrison really defending this demonic realm. But the important point to realize is that the demons know that they can only stay in the area if Jesus allows them. Territorial spirits or not, they can only stay if Jesus allows them. So now they are now begging Jesus uh, uh, to let them go into the pigs in the hillside nearby. And to our surprise, Jesus agrees. Jesus agrees. Look at verse 11. Now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, the demons, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And we see that as soon as the demons enter the pigs, the entire herd of pigs plunges headlong into the sea, into the, into the sea, and it drowns. 
Verse 13 continues, And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and they had, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. This incident, I'm sure, was saying, as for me, as for you, it fills you with many, many questions. So, you, you may have a question, why, how can a demon live inside a pig? You're trying to figure that out. You, you may have other questions, why, why has Jesus uh, allowed this to happen, etc., etc. There are many questions we have, and, uh, and I would love to explore them with you. In fact, we, ch- we tortured them to, uh, to death, uh, as it were, no pun intended, at, uh, during the Bible study. Uh, but... I think the most important question, and do come to me, talk to them, to me about some of those questions you may have afterwards. But I think the most important question for us to ask here is, why has Jesus, that's an agent question, allowed the poor pigs, so to speak, to die like this, right? And for the, you know, the people who owned this property, uh, as we see, they're not going to be very happy, uh, who owned these, uh, these pigs, uh, to just suffer financial loss like this. Why has Jesus allowed this? I think that's the most important question to ask. I think the short, there are two answers to it. I think the short answer, which is quite important to remember, is that the demons have drowned the pigs, not Jesus. We need to be clear about that. It's not Jesus who was, plunged the, who was driven. Jesus drove the demons into the pigs. The pigs, the demons, decided to go into the lake. Verse 13 tells us, doesn't it? And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the head, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. So the destruction is the work of Satan. It is Satan who has destroyed the pig. Why have the demons done this? Maybe they are trying to warn Jesus, right? They are probably trying to warn people, warn Jesus. They're saying, you won here, but look, we've got destructive power. This is what we could do to human beings. Or maybe it is simply the chaos of a demon is too much one for a pig. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, but what is clear here is that the death of pigs shows us something about Satan's aim in life. The mission of satanic powers is not simply to enslave human beings, as we saw this morning, but to ultimately keep human beings under everlasting destruction. And the good news of this passage is that Jesus has arrived, and he has set this demonized man free by his power. And he's done it with amazing power. He has simply issued a command and this entire legion of demons, perhaps 2,000 plus, have left at one go. The question that the disciple asked last Sunday evening, who then is this, even the wind and the sea obey him, has been answered here. This passage is designed to answer that question, as the demons themselves have answered it. Who is it? It is Jesus, son of the most high God. We see here that Jesus is acting in our world with the authority and power of God. And like all miracles, this is telling us that God has entered our world. But more than that, but more than that, it's telling us more than that. It is telling us, pointing us to the work that Jesus has come to do for us. 
He has come to liberate us from the captivity of Satan. You see, what Jesus has done here uh, in the garrisons is a picture of what Jesus would do three years later, or two to three years later, when he's nailed to that cross of wood for our sins. On the cross, Jesus routes the evil powers and, and transfers everyone who trusts in him from Satan to the kingdom of God. I love the way Paul puts it. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Paul describes it like this, what Jesus is doing here, what he's done for us on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. He says, and you are dead. You are like a tomb man. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, and it's a good but, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Bible is saying to us here is that if you are in Jesus, you are not only liberated from the power of Satan, you have a glorious future with Jesus. And that's how we have to understand this miracle, friends. Because in other words, what Jesus is doing in this miracle, what he's doing when he does these miracles, is that he's bringing the power of the kingdom to come in the present now. The kingdom of God has come, and as he does this miracle, he's showing us, this is what the new heavens look like. This is what the new earth I have in store will look like. This is what it means to live with me in the here and now as a member of my kingdom. This is what I have in store. Freedom now and a glorious future. And as we look at what he's done to this man, we can see what this man has gained and what we have gained. We can see that the world to come will be a place where God is the only authority in our lives. In heaven and the new earth, there will be no Satan to tempt us. There will be no addiction to sin. In heaven, it will be a place where we are in full control of our bodies. The demoniac had lost control of his body. Now he's got control back. And that's a picture now of the future for us. It will be a world in which we are in full control. We have new bodies. Freedom from the slavery of sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from pain and suffering. Heaven will be a place where we finally think clearly as we are designed to think. Better than Adam, I said. A superior restoration. If you're in Jesus, you have already a new mind. Already. But in the new world to come, it will be fully perfected. Imagine what it feels like to have proper thoughts about how the world functions. It will be a place where we live in a true community. There will be no denominations. 
All true converted followers of Jesus will do what this man will do later on. They will sit at Jesus' feet in their proper minds. Friends, if you are trusting in Jesus, this is your freedom and this is your future. You have been set free to flourish, beginning now and in the amazing world to come. What a wonderful future. I wonder as you sit here this evening, maybe you're looking at your life and you see broken situations, unfulfilled wishes. You're perhaps struggling with some addictive sin in your life. Perhaps you have a broken relationship that you're struggling to mend or you just feel terribly lonely for whatever reason. Or perhaps you feel hopeless and discouraged about an issue. Well, this passage is telling you, beloved, focus on the big picture. Live as a person who focuses on the big picture. What is the big picture? A world without pain. No Satan. All the fulfillment met in Christ. And Jesus is saying, focus on that. Focus that you now live with God and you have a great future ahead of you. And this means that regardless of what situation you're in, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can live in this life with confidence. You don't have to look anywhere else to other things to bring you happiness. You must look to Jesus who has already set you free. Your sin has been dealt with. You have a new life with God. His life flows through your spiritual veins. There is no need to fear your enemies. There is no need to dread your future because it is already written in the blood of Jesus Christ, Inc. You are under his care, under his protection. He is your king. Satan has lost his grip on your life. You are now liberated from him forever. So rejoice. Rejoice at what Jesus, your Savior, has accomplished for you. But this truth also directs you on how you live, not just simply in rejoicing. Because you see, because you're now free in Jesus, you must understand your position in relation to Satan has changed now. Before you were a slave to Satan, now you are his enemy. Or to put it differently, before you were an inside enemy. Because even then, when you belonged to him, he still hated you. Now you are an outside enemy. The lines are more clear now. And you must know that. Do, do you get the, the, what that means, that you are an enemy of Satan now? What it means is that Satan hates your life to the bone. He hates your family. He hates your job. He hates everything you are about. He hates this church. Why does Satan hate us so much? Because our lives, if we are trusting in Jesus, proclaims his defeat for all eternity. To Satan, we were in his prison and now we broke free. And like the government, he sort of wants us back in. He wants us back in his spiritual belmash, so to speak. We need to understand that. We need to understand we are now secure in the spiritual surface, but Satan... Is after us. He knows he can't take us out of Jesus' protection. But he's still unleashing everything he has from a distance to entangle us in sin. You see, Satan's goal in your life is very simple. If you truly repented, Satan's goal, he knows he can never take your salvation, but he can make you damaged. 
It can render you now and void for the kingdom of God. You thought when you became a follower of Jesus, life would be easier, huh? You thought that. I thought that. You thought that it would just be blessing, blessing, blessing. Well, conversion is a declaration of war. This is what this passage is reminding us. And so the temptations come thick and fast. Satan is seeking to trap you with every relationship. Every ble- you know what? Even the blessings they give you is a trap. He may decide to, to dangle your way. It's a trap. Heavenly God is the one who blesses us, but Satan also gives gifts. <laughs> right? And even some of the things he brings our way and encourages us to have, well, he uses that to trap us in them. To render us now and void. You see, when you give to any of these temptations, when you tolerate sin, you are embracing demonic slavery that Jesus has liberated you from. I want you to imagine, friends, that if the tomb man, who has just been so powerfully delivered from legion, what would we make of him if he decided to go back and start living in the graveyard again? We'd think he's mad, wouldn't we? We'd think he must be mad. It's impossible. It, it can't happen. To wish the demons back. He hasn't understood what he's been under. But friends, every time we tolerate sin, that is what we're doing. We are foolishly going back to that old life of slavery to Satan. It is madness. But Western madness is that it is sad. Why would you love a life of perpetual self-harm rather than living under God's care? And yet, if we're honest, as we think about that, we realize all of us are susceptible to, 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 to live like that, to give in to the pool of darkness. There are times when the works of Satan seem so enticing to us. There are times when the old life of sin tempts us. There are times when Satan promises us many things and we give in. There are times, as it were, when we take our hands off the plow and foolishly wallow back in the graveyard of the garrisons. As we sit here this evening, perhaps some of you are in in a spiritual garrison of some sort. You are willfully allowing Satan to snuff out your love for God. You see, when you became a Christian, you loved the Lord deeply. When you sinned, you quickly confessed your sin. Your heart was broken for God. You attended every Bible study. You rendered, you surrendered your wallet to God. You surrendered everything about you. You couldn't stop telling others about Jesus. God was your everything. But now the excuse for living and serving God abounds. You rarely share Jesus with others. You are not trying to disciple anyone. You are just merely existing in the kingdom of God. Why is that? Why is that? Because Satan has rendered you ineffective. Ineffective for God. Beloved, the Lord Jesus is asking you the same question he asked the demoniac in verse 7. In verse 9. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? 
What is your name? You know, it's the second time I can think of in the Bible when God asks somebody this question. I'll leave you as homework to think of the last time somebody, God asked someone in the Bible this question. What is your name? I think this is the question God is asking all of us this evening. Jesus is asking you this question this evening. What is your name? Are you a child of God or not? Are you under my spiritual house or are you living under the slavery of Satan? Have I set you free or are you still bound in chains in the graveyard of the garrisons? What is your name? Who are you? And if we're in Jesus, we must answer, I am yours, Lord. Here am I. And I surrender completely again my life to you. Because if you're in Jesus, then you should cry out to God in repentance. And he will hear you and you confess that your heart has grown cold. You've been set free, but you're living like a slave. And if you cry out to God, he will hear you because you are his child and he has already delivered you from the domain of darkness. But if you're not willing to cry out to God in this way, if that question is posed to you, what is your name? And you, 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 you are answering by halfway answering it with confusion, with mixed pronouns then there's a problem there of identity there. And it might be that you need deliverance. I mean spiritual deliverance, to be born again. That's what I mean. Because if you're not willing to turn away from sin, to die to self, so that God's victory may be demonstrated in us, then you do not know Jesus. And the only outcome for you is everlasting torment that even Satan dreads. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus has not rescued us from sin to make us divided in our hearts. He will either have all of you or he won't have any of you. Because the second genesis that Jesus performs is a real thing. It's a new heart. Yes, there are areas we need to grow on. But there must be new direction, new affections new desire to love and live for him. A true child of God must give a clear answer to this question. What is your name? And I pray that this evening you would give a clear answer to that. And if you, your, your answer is you belong to Christ, then again, come back to the beginning. Rejoice. The shackles are off. You have been set free. And that you can live a life that truly honor him. You have a great future in Christ. And ask the Lord to continue nourishing and developing you in your love for him as you go forward. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs>